Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Kesed. Uh, let's start with like sobering, but I think exciting news for today. So like summer's almost over. I know, right? Like, and I've talked to a couple like parents this morning and there's been a few in the camp of like, ah, oh, my kids got to go back to school. And there have been others that have been like, yep, they can go back to school right now. Right. And so, but it's still summer right now. And so we're going to have a summer conversation here today together. I'm excited for it. We've been in a series called Choose Your Own Adventure, a summer series. And we're like seven weeks into this. And so I thought it was important to just stop and kind of recap for a second how we started this whole thing and some of our uh, original series ideas were. right. The Choose Your Own Adventure series is a teaching series about the Bible and how to experience it. Right? That's it. About the Bible and how to experience it and put a lot of weight on those last few words and how to experience it. That yes, we are to read it. Yes, we are to memorize it. Yes, we are to learn it. Right? But it is an experience in and of itself. That the collection of stories inside of this book, this library of books, you are meant to experience. Not just read from afar, but they are to impact you. That's what an experience is, right? They are to impact you. And that's the goal of this series, to go on an adventure through that experience. One of the quotes we've been using throughout this series says this, the primary purpose of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible, but to know God. Let me say that one more time. I think it's really important because this is what we're aiming at. The primary purpose of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible, but to know God. That is the end that we are aiming at collectively together. And we've been on an adventure for seven weeks now, and we're going to dive back into it. Now, one of the unique things we've been doing in this series is using the old school choose your own adventure books, right, as kind of our foundation and, and choosing a theme each week. And we've been grabbing one of the books, right? Uh, you guys read those choose your own adventure books before a couple of us have, right? And so uh, we've been looking at one of the, the themes and we chose one for today as well, right? And the book... Uh, that came out in 1984 is titled Trouble on Planet Earth. Check out this artwork, right? Look at those shorts. Look at those socks. That is legit, right? Don't laugh too hard. The thing about fashion is it'll come back if it already hasn't, right? <laughs> yeah, it's right, already has. And so, but here's the idea. There's trouble on planet Earth. And this is the back cover of the book, right? This is the story that uh, exists within that um, <laughs> narration. All right. You and your brother, Ned, have just taken on your toughest case, finding out why every drop of oil in the world has disappeared. Sounds like kind of a big problem, right? Scientists have identified a mysterious island volcano that may have something to do with the problem, and the two of you want to check it out. Now, in true choose-your-own-adventure style, it says this. If you decide to join the Frogman operation and search underwater for clues, turn to page 37. If you decide the island landing party is yours to do, turn to page 40. But be careful. You could become a war hero, stand in tri on trial in an alien court, or cause the destruction of the earth. That's the spectrum of opportunities here. Right? Those are some pretty high stakes, are they not? Right? This unique uh, and really creative story. Here's what I want to do. I just want to grab a couple of themes from it. They're this. First, the choices you make have great impact on you and on others as to how this trouble on earth is experienced. The choices that you make matter. Secondly, something is and has been going on for some time underneath the surface, and it is vital that you become intimately aware of it. This trouble on earth that, like, do, do I have to spend any time convincing any of us that there is trouble on this earth, right? It exists. God's aware of that. And he not just is doing something about it, but has been. And you are called to participate in that. Our job is to become intimately aware of what he's been doing underneath the surface. 
But there's a question I want to ask that I'm, I'm asking you to kind of to receive it, put it in your back pocket for the remainder of our talk here today, and you can kind of unpack it whenever you need to, right? And the question is this. How aware are you of how many people your choices affect? How aware of you, are you of how many people your choices affect? 100%, 90%, 50%, 5%, right? When you actually zoom in on that question, isn't it kind of like, like overwhelming a bit, right? We're going to unpack that here today because you're called into this story, what we're talking about here today, the trouble um, of this earth, even though you didn't cause much of it, most of it, some of us cause more than others, right? That doesn't mean that you're not called into it. But to begin here today, I want to zoom out and look at the big story. The one that you are a part of, whether you recognize it or not. The one that you are called to participate in, whether you feel ready or not. The one that the Bible has been telling for thousands of years that stretches beyond single books and letters and carries a thread, not just through the entirety of the scriptures, but through creation itself. And in this series, we have highlighted one of the amazing resources that we're blessed to have living in this day and age called the Bible Project. And what we're going to do to begin with is we're going to allow them, the, our creative friends at the Bible Project, we're going to allow them to um, teach us a little bit on this grand story. We're going to watch a video here together just for a couple of minutes. And here's what I'm asking, right? This story is going to highlight one of the beautiful things that's kind of hard to do, which is like, what's the big story, right? How do we, how do we look at these 66 books that make up the Bible? and find a common theme throughout. And what I'm asking for you to do is to watch this and to learn and to listen to that, but also re recognize that there's a calling inside of it for you individually, right? And what I'm gonna do is we're gonna watch this and we're gonna come back up and talk about that calling afterwards, amen? All right, let's watch this together. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the Creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of Himself. When did He do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day -day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Huh? Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. 
In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So. Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. Let me share the word that comes to mind in watching that for me, all right? You might have your own. Overwhelmed. When we talk about being created in the image of God, a lot of times, and especially me as a pastor, I'm talking, I first am talking and making identity statements, right? There's a clarifying thing that we have to do as Christ followers and say, we are created in the image of God. And that is a way to communicate to each other that we belong, that we're together, that each one of us are made in the image of God, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. And so we do that as Christ followers and as the church together, we identify that together. But there's another way that we interpret and live out that truth that we, each of us are created in the image of God beyond identity, and that's calling. And that for me is where this gets overwhelming because if all of a sudden some of the responsibility of God's character and nature uh, hitting this earth and being experienced on this earth falls on me, well, that's a bit overwhelming because I'm the guy who can't find his keys half the time, right? Now, I, there's parts of me that's excited that I want to show up for that mission and, and that calling as well, and I think I do okay at, at some of the areas of my life, but then there's other areas of my life that I know that I fall short of that, right? There's some of the areas of my life that I'm aware that I fall short of that. And then there's many more, right, that I'm not even aware of. You can ask my wife. She can tell you the rest of them as well. But there's plenty of areas that I fall short. And so we have to do something about that. And I, here's the thing. I don't think I'm alone. I don't think I'm alone. When, when, I, when we literally, if we had a one-on-one -on -one conversation and, and I said, tell me about... Right? What it's like for you to be an image bearer of God and the responsibility of that. And you let all that like sink in, like rest on you. You'd become aware of that too. And I think a little overwhelmed also. So here's the thing. We have to do something about that because this wasn't just poor planning on God's behalf as to how he will encounter the trouble on earth. See, he's been doing something underneath the surface and inviting us into it from the beginning of time. What I want to do today is unpack that a little bit together. 
And we're going to do so each week in this series. We've been grabbing either a verse or a couple of passages together and calling them our adventure verses. And the goal of that is that you would take them beyond this kind of gathering right now. And over this week, you would, pre, you would read them, you would pray over them, and you would ask how they affect your life, right? Go on the adventure yourselves. So today we're going to do that through Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. And what I want to do is I want to read this, and I'm asking you to notice the unique imagery that's given in it. It says this, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Have you ever thought about how unique that is, that the word of God would be described as sharp? As something that can cut and pierce. I don't know about you, but I've touched a few sharp knives in my day. And this is saying anything that you've experienced pales in comparison to how this can cut. What a unique description. It says it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The most intimate parts in between a part of you. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom, and these are some of that powerful, um, overwhelming words at the end, to whom we must give account. You are accountable for your actions. You're accountable as to how you live, as an image bearer of God. That's overwhelming to me. Like, like all of it, right? There aren't just pockets that you're not accountable for, right? You're accountable for all of the ways in which you image or don't image him. Now, I want to clarify something, right? When it talks about that we will give an account to him, this isn't a salvation conversation, right? That's been decided. But I don't want to take away the power and the weight of this, that your choices affect your life and others' lives in ways that you could never imagine. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into a piercing story, right? We're going to assume that the word of God is meant to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That this word is meant to pierce us. We're meant to embrace it, its cutting ways, and one of the things that happens when we read it and we meditate on it and we learn it and we study it together is it comes in and cuts us and identifies the areas in us that don't look like Jesus and it helps us to do the cutting, but we have, a, we have to participate in that. And we're going to look at a story today in Luke chapter 10 of Jesus doing that with the word of God, allowing it to cut, right? It says this, many of us have heard this story before, the story of the Good Samaritan, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. When you hear expert in the law, some translations say lawyer. So think of someone who's well-versed, who's well, very uh, uh, talented at arguing and words, and this person has brought a question for Jesus, right? They have it planned, and they're going to test Jesus. And he says this, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're just going to come with the big question in front of everybody. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, like he always does, right, turns it around, turns the gotcha moment around and says this, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Right? And all of a sudden, the test giver becomes the test taker. And there's an answer given. Verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and... Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. A plus, right? You got a good grade on that answer. And then he doesn't end with you have answered correctly because that's the, not the only thing being tested here. Do this and you will live. He says, you answered correctly. You got an A on the test, but this life is not lived in tests. It's lived in how we act, our, our behavior. And he says, this thing that you know correctly, do it. Live that way. Embody this, right? And the next thing that happens is this lawyer makes a huge mistake. He asks Jesus a question and gives him 
all right, gives him the space to answer a, what I'd like to call a standard question. Right? He asks him a question and asks where the standard is. He says this, right? And who is my neighbor? All right? He answers correctly. And the lawyer says, well, then Jesus, who is my neighbor? All right? And I want to caution us, right? Though I think this is exactly what we are to do with our lives, I want to caution you that you don't do so thinking that easy answers will come. No piercing answers will come from Jesus. Because what we do matters. And so this piercing answers come is an answer not to the question, but to the question giver. And he answers like this with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. You cannot miss the intimacy, the destruction of this moment. All right? Desperation sh shows up in the story very quickly. Right? This person's clothes have been taken off, beaten half dead. It says this. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Jesus chooses a character that is a religious leader, one that is to be respected in this day and age, a priest. And he says, this person is going down the exact same road and encountered this person that has been left half dead, right? I, the word I keep going back to is, think of the intimacy, right? As someone who gets called to a lot of hospital rooms, there's an intimacy when you're in just your gown, right? When you're, when you're vulnerable in that way. And this person's vulnerable, half dead in that way. And Jesus' description of the story is that this man is traveling on the same road, and not only does he pass this man, but he literally creates distance between that man's suffering and himself. I won't acknowledge it. I won't do anything about it. I won't suffer for, um, to end your suffering. I actually will move away from you so I don't have to acknowledge your suffering. And the story goes on. So too, Aleva, another well-respected religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, the exact same thing happens, right? These are spiritual heroes in the Jewish world, right? These are the ones that are supposed to be doing the good and setting the standard. And Jesus says they're not meeting the standard. And yet Jesus brings a standard setter into the story. He says this, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now pause for a second. It's important to recognize this. By the time Jesus told this story, the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans was ancient, entrenched, and bitter, right? And I know everyone here is a fully sanctified believer in Jesus Christ, and so you've never experienced bitterness toward another person before, right? You're not carrying any of that right now, right? So we can't relate to that right now at all, right? Right? Now that... We know this. Have you ever, has the sheer mentioning of another person's name done something inside of you before? Have, has acknowledging someone else's existence ever caused a reaction and experience inside of you before? It's true. We can relate to this. Most of us can relate to this towards a person. And Jesus is saying, we're, we're acknowledging in this story, this is an entire people group. Entire people group gets that reaction from the Jewish people. And Jesus says, that's the hero of our story. The Jews and the Samaritans disagreed about everything that mattered. How to honor God, how to interpret the scriptures, and where to worship. They practiced their faith in separate temples, read different versions of the Torah, and avoided social contact with each other whenever possible. Truth be told, they hated each other's guts. And this is Jesus is adding color to the story. Speaking of the Samaritan, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He saw suffering and he met it. He suffered on behalf of the one experiencing suffering. Though we're inclined 
to love the Good Samaritan, Jesus' choice to make him the hero of this story was nothing less than shocking to first century ears. This enemy is using pieces of his own clothing to make bandages. He used his own wine as a disinfectant and his own oil as a soothing lotion. He put the man on his own donkey and paid the innkeeper out of his own pocket. He was willing to suffer to end someone else's suffering. And Jesus says to our lawyer, to the rule keeper, to the one. You ever think why you would need to test Jesus? Right? Why would you have the confidence to test Jesus to see if he has the right answer? Because you think that you have the right answer. He thought he had, he thought he had the, the story fully made up, right? I have the accurate story of who God is, fully. And I'm going to test you, Jesus. Jesus flips it around and he asks him a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law, completely gotten, replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice this. He won't even say his name. He won't even say Samaritan. All right? Is that bitterness gone? No. See, we can, we can learn and know the things of God, but when we don't know them by also, by also living with the heart of God, we're missing the story. We can know them and miss God's heart in the process. See, Jesus isn't answering the question. He's answering the person. Now, I know that all of us here are fully sanctified believers, right? We're complete in our process of being like Christ, right? Yes, right? right? You can say yes with your eyes. So I know that if the tables were turned, right, and if we didn't have access to the New Testament and this new rabbi showed up teaching these new things that are outside of our scope of what we're supposed to do in faith, that I'm sure that none of us would have questions for Jesus, Right? I'm sure none of, all of us would be completely receptive because all of us, when you look at our lives, we are all completely receptive to new truth and new ideas, right? All of us, right? Completely sanctified people, followers of Christ, right? No, I, see, here's the thing. I think if one of us came and questioned Jesus, I think what he would do is he wouldn't tell the same piercing story. He'd have a story for you and for me that pierced our souls. He would find the area in our life that didn't look like him, and he would form a parable, a story that pierced us. And the question is, well, are we willing to be pierced? Are we willing to receive it? Parables like these are meant to leave a mark in our lives, in our theologies, and in our souls. They're meant to challenge us, to convict us, and to pierce us. Why? Because the choices that you make have a great impact for you and for others as to how this trouble on earth is experienced. And I'd love to share with you guys a little story I experienced recently that I think adds some color to that as well. Recently, I was invited to attend and speak at our uh, KSM, Kesson Student Ministries summer camp. Right? Has anyone been a part of a summer camp before? Right? A couple of us attended the summer camp. Maybe you went when you were a kid before. These are pretty fun things. We have a picture of uh, our kids heading out right before they headed out. So if you've ever been a part of a summer camp, this is a great time. Right? Uh, nobody's been hurt yet. <laughs> uh, the middle school boys don't smell yet. Love you, middle school boys. But um, you know, you go away to a camp and no one's making you take a shower. You just tend to not. Right? And so, like, super fun time, but there's all this air of ex expectation going on. There's a little anxiety in the, in the lives and the hearts of the students because they don't really know what to expect. And, and so, um, but this is them heading off to camp, and they get up to camp. And um, the camp we go to is incredible, right? There are so many things to do. There's a gym, and half of the gym is dedicated to archery tag. And I didn't say that wrong. Take that in, right? Literally bows and arrows that we give to middle school boys and say, hey, get them, right? <laughs> we give them masks, right? 
Right. There is, there's always a volleyball game going on. There's a pool. All right. And, and one of the fun things that to do there is there is a giant lake and, and, uh, some amazing people in our church brought up some boats and they, uh, one of the things to do during the middle of the day is that you got to go out on the boat and get pulled around on a tube. Right. I have a couple pictures of this, right? These are some of the fun pictures of this. I think we have one more. All right. I chose these pictures. Super fun. I have some others with just sheer terror on their face, but I didn't show those ones. Right. All right. Super fun. So here's the thing. This was like the coveted thing and there's only so many that can go out. So the way that we did this is you had to at lunch, you had to get your lunch and eat your lunch. And there's a moment at lunch where we made an announcement and said, if you want to sign up for the boats today, come on over and sign up right? You couldn't sign up for like the entire week at one o'clock. You had to sign up each day. The goal is that everyone gets to experience it, right? And this thing started to happen every day at lunch that was really funny. It's like the kids that knew after like day two, they knew that the sign up was coming. And so they would eat really fast, right? And then they would like start turning their bodies like to where they knew the sign up was over there and they didn't know when the sign up was and they're just eating and they're just ready to like to start running in that direction, right? Especially the middle school boys, right? Middle school boys are just old enough to, to see uh, going on a boat as fun and having experienced enough life to know that they uh, can get hurt doing that. My son, this was his very first camp, and he told me the first time he went in, he, he, they were going around the corner, and he fell off, and he, his description was, he said, Dad, I skipped on the water like a rock, right? <laughs> I was both, I high-fived him and was terrified all at the same time, right? But this is the fun experience in the, and, and that they did each day. Now, there was a safety kind of prerequisite to do this experience. You had to pass a swim test, right? And they have a pool there, and you had to swim um, down and back and down and back. Now, I'll be honest. I don't think I could do this, like, just me right now. I like, I'm like, you guys have fun. I'm away from the, the beach over here. Like, have fun. Like, oh, look at that kid bouncing right there, right? Some of the kids, a lot of the kids were able to pass this because they're better swimmers than I am and they're younger and have more energy and more stamina, right? And a few didn't, right? And we had one amazing, uh, I like to call spunky young lady who had just kind of aged into youth group. So she was going to be a sixth grader, right? This was her, her pretty much first youth experiences together. And she went and she tried to do the test and she failed and she tried again and she failed, right? So she can't go out in the boats. This amazing, and I, I want to use this word for the rest of our talk, sacred thing happened. Some of the middle school boys heard about this, the ones that had signed up for the two, right? And they gave away their spot going out on the boat, and they literally created a little swim school for her each day. And they got into the water and they gave her swim lessons. Now, here's the funny thing. They weren't good swimmers themselves. No one's going to the Olympics, right? So there's just a lot of splashing going on, right? But they literally, I'm, again, I tell you, I have an amazing, amazing middle schooler, right? But he can forget his name sometimes. Like, and these boys set like a time and stuck to it each day and met her in the pool and gave her swim lessons that by the third day she passed her test. Right? Isn't that incredible? By, by Wednesday, she passed her test. Now, she's so excited because she's going to get to go on the boat on Thursday. Right? So excited. But every night, we play a game. And, and we played this game on Wednesday night that kids are running around like crazy. And our young, little, spunky uh, lady, she and another bigger boy run into each other and actually knock heads. Right? And she has a pretty intense reaction to this, to the point where we, we think we should, we should call uh, the EMTs just because we don't mess around with this. We don't make sure that she's okay. And so we do that. And they come and they say, um, we actually want to take her in and make, give her some tests to make sure she's okay. Anything with the head we don't mess around with also. And so you can imagine what happened in the camp. Kids are playing a game and then all of a sudden two ambulances show up it, like in a dark night with all their lights going everywhere, right? And like, game over, I guess, right? And so we say, okay, and we have an amazing camp nurse, an amazing um, cabin leader that said, uh, we love her, we're just with her, we're going with her, and we're just going to stay there as long as we need to. 
right? Um, and she goes and gets tests done, and she's okay, right? And, but this crazy other thing happens. A bunch of love and annoying middle schoolers start asking us about her, like over and over and over and over again, right? You know how like young people can be, I talked about that salmon earlier, right? Like they can be like woodpeckers for what they want, right? Are they, is she okay? Is she okay? Is she okay? And it's like, I just answered this like seven seconds ago. Like I don't, you saw me. I didn't get a phone call in this time, right? But it was, it was incredible because sometimes in stories like this, right? And this isn't exclusive just to kids, by the way. Sometimes we just want to be in on the loop, right? It's a little gossipy why we want to have the answer. That wasn't what was happening here. What was happening here is an entire camp turned their love and their care towards this young person that they had only met two days before. And as I sat back and I noticed the swimming and that sacred moment, and I noticed this, I just was overwhelmed by this. And I had enough time to process it because we were up till the middle of the night making sure that she was okay. And it just so happens the next morning is when it was my turn to speak. And I got to share with these kids and we got to tell them that she was okay. And guess who was sitting front and center with a giant shiner, right? No sleep the next morning. Even though she had the opportunity to go to rest, she didn't want to miss the time with everybody else, right? It was amazing. And I started to share, and I had a whole message planned, and it got thrown out the window because I've learned at these camps, you can't go fully planned. You've got to listen, right? The Spirit's doing something, and you've got to listen. So I started to share, and one of the first things I shared was just my, some of my own story. And I said, if you would have met me when I was in middle school and high school, you would have, you would have met this really uh, energetic, right, uh, young man. He had red hair. It was awesome, right? And you would have found me probably um, pretty dang confident in myself, fun, all right, willing to serve and help, all of the above, right? But what you wouldn't have seen is the fear and the terror that existed in me always, that if I didn't act like that towards everybody else, that I, didn't, I wasn't really wanted. What you wouldn't have seen, I shared with them, was that I was, I was terrified that I didn't belong. I was terrified. So, so was, there was this internal message that I had to perform for love. I had to perform for belonging. And much like I think just happened in this room, I, walked, I looked around and I saw the hearts and the lives and the eyes of the young people there, and I could see that this, what I was sharing, was a common human experience. This is some of the trouble on earth that we all experience. And I asked them if that's something they experienced, and they raised their hand and said yes. And I felt led to share Isaiah 59, 19. And I read this to them. Isaiah 59, 19 says this. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now, the enemy showing up like a flood sure seems like trouble to me, is it not? Right? And the Lord's response is to lift up a standard. And when I said to them, it was like, I highlighted the swimming story and I highlighted the fact that they annoyingly cared so much. And I said, did you notice the sacred thing that happened? that you lifted the standard, you lifted the standard on what care and love looks like. Like outside of the walls of this camp, that's not how this is. Generally, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but like I can't find a better description of um, Jews and Samaritans than middle school boys and girls, <laughs> right? A little bitterness going on there sometimes. And I just named this and I said, I'm. I'm just going to name this thing happening. And I told him, I said, this is my fear. My fear is that that standard that got raised here gets left here. My fear is that this, this way in which you guys have chosen collectively to love one another and care for one another, it wasn't perfect, right? These, but it was beautiful. I said, I'm afraid that you'll leave it here. And I felt in my heart convicted to challenge them. I said, I hope you won't. And I asked them again, I said, have any of you felt like the one that doesn't belong? That felt like the one that would be easily passed by on the other side of the road? And I said, if that's an answer that you would say yes to, and I asked them, I said, would you stand? And like the whole room stood. And then because I've done youth ministry for a long time and I'm convinced that their young people are the bravest among us, I asked him another brave question. And I said, if you, if you would be willing 
to keep the standard that's been set here? Would you do something to show us that that means something to you? Right? And I said, would you be willing right now, as, a, as an example of raising the standard, to go from standing, and I didn't ask the camp if I could do this, to standing on your chair, right? To standing on your chair. I think we have a picture of this. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice an entire camp of kids, all right? How, how did it work for you when you were in middle school and high school and you were asked to do something in front of everyone else? right? It was beautiful. It was messy. It was beautiful. And it was a, as again and again and again, we see through the, the scriptures, young people leading us. These, these young people made a brave decision to do the best of their ability to raise the standard, to say the way that I will love and that I will live will reflect Jesus and the ways in which my standards are not his. I will submit them and I will allow the scriptures to pierce my heart. And so here's my question. Will you? Will you be led by them? Will you surrender your life and your authority and all the experience that you have and be willing to be led by young people just running after Jesus? Will you acknowledge that there's still work to be done? We acknowledge that piercing is a normal part of the Christian life. That we live the arc of Jesus' life by being willing to be pierced ourselves. This question came to, my, came to me and was overwhelming. It was this. How can I call God the source of my strength if I have not made him the source of my standards? Let's say that again. How can I call God the source of my strength if I have not made him the source of my standards? And here's what I know. I know as I say that, if you will allow the Holy Spirit to convict you, if you will reflect, I know, because none of us are Jesus, I know that there's an area of your life just like mine, the Holy Spirit is right now is saying we need to raise the standard. We need to raise the standard. This will require dying to self. This will require setting down some narratives that are hard to set down. This will require setting down some of the bitterness and our need for justice to come on our terms. I know and I trust, though, that this is the journey of Christ's followers. There's some standard setting that needs to happen. So here's what we're going to do here today. In a moment, our worship team is going to come back out, and we're going to enjoy communion together. And one of the ways in which the New Testament describes communion for us, this sacred sacrament, is that it is supposed to be a reflective experience. It is meant to, as we partake of the bread, his body broken on our behalf, and we say that story is my story, and we drink of the cup that symbolizes his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, and we say that story is my story. We are then to turn it and not just see the story over there to say, does my life reflect that? Does my life reflect that? As an image bearer of God, does my life reflect that? And Lord, would you pierce anywhere that doesn't? So I just want to pray for us here today. I want to challenge us. Feel the conviction that's here. Feel it. It's not guilt or shame. But it is a pathway for many of us into more Christ-likeness, acknowledging the ways in which we don't look like him. I pray that you would be willing to be pierced. I pray that we would all take a courageous moral inventory of our lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, every single person here, we're in relationships, I pray that there is a weight that comes in the room, Lord. It's not just carried by us, Lord. You're with us. But there is a weight that says my actions matter, my beliefs matter, what I do matters, and it ripples beyond even what I'm aware of. No one here, no, 
No one here expected this story to change them. And I guarantee, Lord, I know it, none of the middle schoolers that hopped in the pool did so saying, I sure hope this affects those people that hear this story. Yet you have a way, Lord, of taking one person's story, one person's suffering, and transforming it and making it more than it ever could be on our own, Lord. And so I pray that there is a conviction in this room. I pray that in our worship and as we come forward and receive communion, there is a reflection and there is a Holy Spirit empowered energy that embraces piercing. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Friends, there's stations up here in the front, one in the back. There's ones up, up there as well. Just come forward as you feel led and reflect back at your chairs. Let's worship together. Caught up in this Moment. I just wanna sit here at your feet. Caught up in this holy moment. I never wanna leave. Oh, I'm not here for blessing. Jesus, you don't owe me anything More than anything that you can do I just want you I'm sorry When I've just gone through the motions I'm sorry when I just sing another song. Take me back to where we started. I open up my heart to you. Oh, I'm sorry when I've come with my agenda. I'm sorry. God, that you're enough. Take me back to where we started. Open up my heart to you. I'm caught up in your presence. I just wanna see.
Help me know, yeah. Help me know you. 